dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins? Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I am the eater of wolves and of children. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another ghostly installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 288, The Sixth Sense. A movie that I really don't think I had rewatched in at least 20 years. Yeah, probably the same for me, and it was one that was not originally on the Greatest October schedule, but we decided to change things up a few weeks ago, as we are wont to do. Definitely. We yes. always act like these things are set in stone, and then we call audibles for whatever reason. So much planning goes in. It's good to just have a plan, and then, you know, if you have to change the plan, you change the plan. Yeah, the original selection was, I thought, maybe a little too obscure, although our listeners do surprise us from time to time, especially with the the response to the Paris, Texas episode and everything, but I read down a list of movies uh-huh. I had written down, and you picked this one as a, a good fill-in. Yeah. And it's a huge movie, it's a cultural phenomenon type movie, and it happened 23 years ago, I think for maybe some of our younger... Listeners, maybe they don't fully grasp how big this movie was at the time. I can remember my parents being told by like our neighbors that they had to go see it. And like my parents went and saw it. And years go by with them not seeing a movie in the theater. Yeah, I think it's something that we talked about a little bit in the episodes for Sideways or American Beauty or something. And those are much more aimed to exclusively adults because they're R-rated. But yes, this movie was part of that thing where older people were going, but since it was rated PG-13, younger people were going too, and it just became a sensation out of nowhere, and it led to a full career for M. Night Shyamalan with all of its various ups and downs and everything to go along with that. Sure, yeah. The trajectory of his career, it's possible, has had an impact on my desire to go back to this, but even at a younger age, caught up in the fever... Watched it the first time that I did, watched it again, and then I kind of just set it to the side and really didn't go back for a long time. So before we dive into The Sixth Sense, 
Let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter. If they aren't already, we're at GreatestPod. And you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know. The easiest way to do that would be on Twitter, probably, at GreatestPod. And you can find us on Letterboxd. Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. Yeah. Sometimes you write a one-line review and get 70 likes, and sometimes <laughs> you spend two hours on a review and get eight. Yeah. <laughs> the way of Letterboxd. It's really, yeah. And you never know the movie that you're going to strike a chord with someone right. w- with a less than positive review. That's cool that you like this more than I do. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. I don't. You don't need to comment about it. <laughs> Please don't interact with my reviews, yeah. but also, if you could throw it a like. Listen, I get enough criticism of my star ratings from Zach. I don't need them from anybody else. I'm at my capacity. Maybe you should start to take a look inward, though, yeah. if it's coming from multiple <laughs> sources. My reviews aren't good. All right. The Sixth Sense, 1999. A movie year that has been written about. There's a whole book about 1999. There was a special version of the Rewatchables 1999. Uh-huh. 1999 was a big deal. It was a huge movie year. Maybe one of the last truly great ones that wasn't just critically great, but huge box office, huge everything. And The Sixth Sense was right in the middle of it. Written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Had a $40 million budget, which is kind of surprising because Shyamalan was not really a proven director by any means. But I think they were more willing to throw around money back then. Well, I wonder at what point Bruce Willis was attached. Oh, well, we'll get to that. Okay. Sometimes with these big names, they're a little bit more. Yeah, that certainly helped, obviously. Right. Box office ended up being $672.8 million. Yeah. I think if I was M. Night at that point, I, I would have called it a day. <laughs> in addition to the box office of the theaters, it was also rented by 80 million people in the year 2000, making it one of the biggest rentals of all time. Uh-huh. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, of which it won zero. Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Haley Joel Osment. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Tony Collette. Best Director, Best Original Screenplay and best film editing. But to top it all off, the cherry on this Sunday, is that in Entertainment Weekly's 134 film summer movie preview of 1999, <laughs> The Sixth Sense wasn't even mentioned. Wow. Making it the true definition of a sleeper hit. Yeah. They didn't even think it was big enough to mention. Holy shit. For some reason, which is weird because Bruce Willis is in it. You think that would at least garner enough of a mention. But yeah. Yeah, it came out of nowhere. There's well, really no way to explain that in today's times because I think if they spent $40 million on any movie, you're going to at least hear a lot about it. Well, I mean, it definitely got some interest from the trailer. And the whole fucking I See Dead People thing took off. Yeah, it clearly worked. It was well-marketed and it caught on, but I don't think that people really saw that coming. Yeah, yeah. Necessarily. David Vogel, then president of production of Walt Disney Studios, read Shyamalan's spec script and loved it. Without obtaining corporate approval, Vogel bought the rights, despite the price of $3 million, which was a lot. 
And the stipulation that Shyamalan could direct the film, which I'm pretty sure would not have been something that would have been approved at the time, because like we said, Shyamalan was not well-established. Disney dismissed Vogel from his position at the (laughs) studio, and Vogel left the company shortly thereafter. Disney sold the production rights to Spyglass Entertainment while retaining the distribution rights and 12.5% of the film's box office takings. It gets interesting, though, when you factor in the involvement of Bruce Willis, because though Shyamalan had written the script with Bruce Willis in mind, his casting in the role of Malcolm Crowe was part of a deal to compensate the studio for Willis's role in the implosion of Broadway Brawler the year before. This is one of those notorious Hollywood stories of a movie that Never happened, but okay. cost a ton of money. Oh, shit. Broadway Brawler is an unfinished 1997 romantic comedy film that was to be directed by Lee Grant, of all people, from classic films, including Valley of the Dolls. Okay. And starring Bruce Willis and Mara Tierney, it was co-produced Ooh. by Bruce Willis and Joseph Fury of Synergy Pictures and was to have been distributed by the Walt Disney Company. After approximately two years of pre-production were complete, as well as... 20 days of principal photography, the production was halted owing to the acrimonious environment on set. Wow. Willis was dissatisfied with the performance of multiple members of the crew, (laughs) including cinematographer William A. Fraker, wardrobe designer Carol Oditz, director Lee Grant, and Willis's co-producer and Grant's husband, Joe Fury. Wow. So not really happy with a lot of the minds behind this one all of whom were terminated along with several other members of the cast and crew, as more than half of the film's $28 million budget had already been spent, Willis brought on director Dennis Dugan to try to carry on. However, production folded before Dugan would be able to shoot any scenes. The agents of the other actors publicly expressed a belief that these actors would be paid in full, regardless of the folding of production. They later were reported to have reached an amicable settlement. And of course, this is extremely unusual for such a large budget production to simply end without a finished product. So what happened was Willis was potentially going to get sued for a huge amount of money by the Walt Disney Company because they had already invested this money. As part of a settlement reached before anything happened in terms of a court of law, Willis agreed to film Armageddon at a reduced salary oh. of only $3 million, which was far below what he was usually getting, which yeah. was $20 million. Holy shit. And then he also agreed to do two more movies, The Sixth Sense being one of them. I think he was paid $10 million, which is still about half price. And then Disney's The Kid, which oh, yeah. I've never seen, but I think it's where he meets a younger version of himself uh-huh. or something like I, that. I did see it. Those were the three movies that were part of this deal to make up for Broadway Brawler. Well, two like giant hits. Yeah. Like massive. Yeah, they made the three movies, even if you want to take out the kid, but if you want to throw them all together, I think it was like a a $2 billion thing. Broadway Brawler was, I think, going to be in the mold of Jerry Maguire. It was supposed to be a sports-related romantic comedy. I think Broadway Brawler was in reference to him being an ex-New York Rangers hockey player or something like that. Okay. It probably would have been terrible, but... Yeah, I'd love to see like if they released the YouTube videos of the twenty days. <laughs> they of probably were destroyed. Yeah, him just like flipping out. The Sixth Sense was not 
M. Night Shyamalan's directorial debut. He actually made an independent film called Praying with Anger in 1992 and a comedy called Wide Awake in mm-hmm. 1998 with Dennis Leary, Dana Delaney, Rosie O'Donnell. It was a bomb. It Something lost a ton of money. I don't think I know, or if I did, I completely forgot that that is the case. I checked today and saw these other two credits before yeah. this, and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess there was a little bit of a precursor. The same year as The Sixth Sense, Shyamalan also did an uncredited rewrite of She's All That. Oh. The popular teen movie. Hell yeah. He was the credited writer on Stuart Little. Hmm. So he was there. He was a player. He wasn't a nobody who came out of nowhere with this spec script and made this hit movie. He was around, but to be handed a $40 million budget with a cast including Bruce Willis... That was sort of unheard of. It was a big surprise for that to happen. Totally. So I do think that we're going to approach this movie a little bit differently than what we usually do. Rather than hit every single beat of the plot, I think we're going to trim that down a little bit because once you've seen this movie and you know the surprise twist ending, it sort of becomes impossible to watch it the same way. And I think we have to spend a lot of time up yeah. front right now discussing the twist ending and then what that means for the movie going forward. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, rewatchability is not a prerequisite for this podcast. We can do films that might be too troubling to want to watch all the time or too depressing to want to watch all the time. But this is a very specific scenario mm-hmm. where... In some way, once you know the twist and then watch it again to see what you missed, there really isn't much more to be gained from the film. And I think that's something that Shyamalan has struggled with in his career because this became his calling card because of the success of the film. Uh And I guess we need to discuss the value of that kind of art and how we process that. Because I think part of our show is... These are our favorite movies. Yeah. We watch them all the time. We watch some of these movies every year, but this is not one of those movies. Sure. I fit into like that problem category because I did love the movie, and then I watched it a second and probably a third time, but then was quickly kind of like, all right, I think I'm good here. Yeah. And then that was kind of it. I didn't see the DVD sitting out and was thinking, I'm going to buy it. You know what I mean? It was just never one of those movies that I was returning to. Yeah, I think there's value in returning to it maybe two decades later, which is sort of the case for both of us. But yeah, with a lot of other Shyamalan's work, I only ever saw it once. I only saw Unbreakable once, Signs once, The Village once. Mm -hmm. A lot of them I didn't see, but out of those ones I just named, there was never a reason to go back once you knew how it played out. I would say that those movies are all successful to varying degrees. Signs was a huge hit, too. True. By today's standards, Unbreakable was also a big hit. I think at the time, people thought it was slightly underwhelming because the box office for The Sixth Sense was so huge. After that, I think people got tired of it, especially after The Village, which people particularly hated at the time. For sure, which I remember well. The vitriol from people on that one. And the weird thing is, in my memory, I don't remember The Village being that bad. I would have to rewatch it to really know for sure what it was like because it's been so long 
<laughs> but for some reason, if you were to ask me right now, between Unbreakable, Signs, and The Village, which one would you want to watch tonight? I would say The Village, probably. Okay. And I know that for most people, that would be the least of the three. Yeah. But the fact that that is for you makes me want to watch it more. <laughs> it had the double twist. Yeah. The rare double <laughs> twist. <laughs> I think people were more pissed at the second twist. Yeah. Because they thought it was so stupid, even though I kind of thought it was cool. But anyway, for those of you who have never seen The Sixth Sense and somehow don't know the twist ending, which I can't imagine is anyone, but in case that there, does seem impossible, in case there's someone that doesn't know, I would recommend shutting this off and just watching the movie because you only get it once. Yeah. Although I think once you know that there's a twist, it's kind of hard to not know what that would be. That is true. But yeah. somehow when I was a kid, same. I saw yeah. this in the theater. I never tried to guess endings to movies. I still Same. don't Yeah. if I can, if I can help it. Hmm. I don't know. I seem to d- distinctly remember during Don't Worry, Darling, when we were like five minutes into it. And you're like, I think I know what happens. Do you want me to tell you? <laughs> well, I was wrong. Kind of. I was kind of wrong. Yeah, yeah. But that's different because I was goofing on I it. Know. <laughs> but anyway, if you don't know what the ending of The Sixth Sense is, please shut this off. Don't let us spoil it. Just go watch it and have fun with it. Moving on, the end of the film reveals that Bruce Willis's character has been dead the whole time. That should not really be a surprise to anybody. But for whatever it's a surprise reason, to me. <laughs> you're like, what? In I was a- like starting to panic as soon as you said that there's like a twist. I'm like, <laughs> like, wait a minute. I don't know what that is. In a pre-Twitter, mostly pre-internet age, you could really conceal these types of things well for an extended period of time too, if you wanted. It wasn't as difficult as today. I think today people, even if they didn't spoil it, they would just be like tittering on Twitter. Like, ooh, the twist, the twist. And then you go into the movie and it is sort of limited as to what that twist would be. Yeah, And it kind of seems obvious. But back then I think it was a much different time. And it definitely was a, a surprise to me when I saw it in the theater. I think I probably saw it opening weekend or sometime around then. Obviously, the surprise of the twist and the reveal and the shocking nature of it to people is what propelled this movie to be successful because of the word of mouth. Right. Which it just seemed like people were better sports about being, hey, you got to just see this. Go in knowing nothing, but go see it. Yeah. Sometimes you would hear horror stories about yeah, yeah. jackasses intentionally spoiling it for people waiting in line or, or stuff like that, but that yeah. was not that common. I don't think that's funny. <laughs> Knock that shit off, people. <laughs> but here's the question. Once you know the twist ending of The Sixth Sense, is the movie as good? And that's a hard question to answer because on w- the one hand, it's not as enjoyable. Because well, the, the punch isn't there anymore. Yeah, and you start to notice the things you probably didn't notice right. the first time. No character other than the guy who can see dead people is talking to Bruce Willis, which is something you might not pick up on. And there's a whole lot of other stuff, too, although I do think one of the flaws of The Sixth Sense is the inconsistencies, because yeah. you read through some of this stuff, and they're like, oh, well... Bruce Willis doesn't really pick up or touch objects, and then parentheses, except for this, 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 and this. And you're I like, know. oh, okay. <laughs> or 
you never see him opening a door or going right. through a door or how does he get here and how does he get there. You never actually see that. And that is true, but... Or Cole's never seeing his breath around Well, that Malcolm. is sort of answered. The thing with the breath is that it only gets cold when the ghosts are upset. When they're emotional? Yeah, and okay. he's not emotional because there's no reason to be yeah. until he finds out that he's dead at the end. Yeah, and I guess like the one time that he does something with an act of aggression, he's outside the building when he breaks the glass. Yeah, and we don't see yeah. how he does it right. or anything. So we're not really sure what happened there. I do think that... I mean, I get it. The more times you watch the movie, once you start picking up on things you missed the first time, then you can start picking up on things that don't add up or don't make sense. I'm not 100% convinced every detail of this movie makes sense, especially when you really start digging deeper. There are potential explanations, but they get kind of convoluted. Yeah. And I don't really know that the juice is worth the squeeze with some of them because I think that ultimately a movie like this is designed around the twist and Mm -hmm. then trying to pack in as much emotion as possible into a couple of key scenes. Yeah. And I think that it's successful in that sense. But the question remains, is the movie as good? And I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It is tough. But I I do want to point out that that stuff, not necessarily all adding up, I don't think is to this movie's detriment like at all. No, I don't either. Yeah. You're watching a movie where a, a little boy can see ghosts. It's, <laughs> you have to just sort Suspend of ride with some of Suspend a little bit, stuff. yeah. And maybe as we go through it, we'll point out what we're talking about. But just yeah. some of the details with why is this happening, or he lays out these explicit rules about these ghosts, but then some of the things that happen later seem to contradict those things that he says, so you're not really sure why. There's tons of movies that reward additional viewings, but there's certain ones where it's almost like people always say, you have to watch this twice. And this was definitely one of those. I don't think you have to watch this twice. You don't think? It it helps. Yeah. I always felt like this was one of the ones where people are like, watch it a second time. Well, You'll start picking up on I don't think you All understand it more. I think you just notice things you didn't well, notice. Well, okay, fair. I think you yes. can understand it the first time. Sure, okay. And it, it hits. But I think the watching it of the second time is just to see what you miss. Like, oh, these people don't talk to him. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, oh, he's just sitting there, but... Cole tells you exactly what's up <laughs> in the middle of the movie. Yeah, and then you, yeah, you definitely pick up on the fact that Cole seems to know Malcolm is dead the whole yeah. time, which is something that you probably wouldn't even think about the first time you watch it because you're so shocked by the ending. You're yeah. not going back to think, well, did the little boy know he was dead? Or was that just a coincidence? It is weird to go back because it must have been effective even for older people. I'm thinking we were young when we saw this movie, but dude, in every scene, I'm not thinking that his wife is not interacting with him. Other than like she's being cold... I was not thinking to myself that he's not there. I think the thing that you can lose sight of is the validity of art like this. Because we are doing a podcast about movies that we watch a lot. And our listeners probably watch a lot too. And they like to talk about movies or tweet about movies or read film criticism or go on Letterboxd and log what they watch and discuss movies and talk about movies. So there is sort of a perpetual motion with these movies no matter what year the film came out it never is old or it's never irrelevant because we're always talking about it and rewatching it and buying it on whatever new physical media etc 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 remakes reboots nothing is over <laughs> so how do you process a film that 
is truly designed for maximum impact once. Uh-huh. You can go back and rewatch it and see what you missed and go, oh, this and that, but the maximum impact is the first right. time. There are other films, like the ones that come to mind when you say films that you have to rewatch, that to me, the maximum impact is either more spread out or it may not even come until a second or third time yeah. until it finally clicks. That is certainly not the case with The Sixth Sense. Or most of Shyamalan's films, which are all designed for that one-time holy shit moment, I guess my answer would be rewatchability is not essential to films. Yeah. It is nice. It is cool. We like that. I have a huge physical media collection. I love rewatching movies, but it's not essential because, first of all, this movie was a huge hit. Definitely. People liked it. It got good reviews. It got nominated for Oscars. People appreciated it. But even if you don't want to look at money or stupid awards or whatever, there was a reason it was a cultural phenomenon. It captured people's imaginations. And I think that there is a validity to this type of thing when it's done this well. Yeah. I don't know that you can really replicate that in 2022 because of the internet, because people would sort of ruin it, even if they're just saying, I'm not spoiling it, I'm not spoiling it, but the big twist, it's like, again, yeah. if you keep saying that with this movie, I think people would figure it out. Yeah. It's not that I can kind of remember that happening with like a Gone Girl Twitter blowing up. I don't think I really knew what was going to happen in Gone Girl when we saw it. I didn't either, but I was looking for a twist because of those types of comments. That's true. In a way that I wouldn't have. I don't think I knew what it would be, though. Yeah, no, me neither. And it's still packed a powerful punch. You'll see this movie compared to like a magic trick and there's a scene in the movie where bruce willis is doing a magic trick sure and it yeah. does kind of work that way right where you're like you don't really want to watch a magic trick over and over but the first time it might be effective yeah and i think that in its own way the sixth sense and some of Shyamalan's other films fall into a completely different category than a lot of other films even though they're working in the same medium mm-hmm these are films, they're opening in theaters, we want you to come in and see them, but he is taking more of a magic trick approach to it. Obviously, it would be nice if people would want to watch it more than once or sure. more than twice and buy the VHS or DVD or Blu-ray, but that's not necessarily crucial if it can reach a huge amount of people all in one go right away because the result might be the same. And This movie, to put it in some perspective... When they did the anniversary of the AFI Top 100, which they only did twice, 1997 and then 2007, The Sixth Sense was in the Top 100. And it was one of the only current new films that got added to the 2007 list. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's how big this was. Definitely. I think if they redid it now, that would be one of the films that didn't make the cut. Yeah. Can't be understated how at least significance in pop culture for this time period... This movie was huge. I do think that its success became an albatross around Shyamalan's neck. You can think of it as the blessing and the curse kind of a thing where obviously he has a career because of this movie. It put him into a stratosphere. I'm sure he made a lot of money in his career because of it. But he became very fixated on that idea. If you can pull it off every single time as well as The Sixth Sense, that would be great. But that's pretty much impossible. So he starts chasing it. Uh Uh-huh. And 
at a certain point, I think probably the lady in the water is when it really started because people were pissed about the village, which came right before it. But at a certain point, there was a huge backlash against M. Night Shyamalan. His movies started Definitely. to do terribly. The reviews started to get bad. I guess the peak of terribleness may have been either The Happening or Last After Airbender? Earth. I think that was like a single-digit Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah, I don't know how people who felt about that cartoon... That didn't really feel like his thing, though. That's that was true. A well, that, that is true. Yeah, people did hate The Happening. There was a lot of vitriol towards that. Yeah, The Happening, After Earth. These movies were bombing uh-huh. very hard. And then he sort of got banished and had to rebuild his career with his own money and sort of take a chance on himself and do smaller things like The Visit and then eventually Split, which was... A decent movie, and yeah. it, it came back for him, I guess. But I do think that he's been chasing a high with this twist ending stuff. And I don't even know that all of those movies actually have twist endings. I don't think all of them do, but most of them do. And that became his calling card and his thing, and the audience is expecting it. Right. And so he's trying to deliver, but then people are like, oh, that's stupid. Or, yeah. Like, if his first movie... I know that this is going to turn into me defending The Village, a movie I haven't seen in (laughs) over 15 years. But (laughs) if his first movie was The Village, I think people would have been like, oh, that was kind of cool and weird. That's like a Twilight Zone or something. Probably not as big as Sixth Sense, but not hated. I think people would have been more open to it. But once you got to that point, people were annoyed with this. It becomes a gimmick. Right. It was totally what he thought was going to be his thing and it was to a certain extent because people did kind of like unbreakable and then signs was a big hit and it seemed to be working but it was unsustainable for long term yeah you can't build movies around twists that just can't work forever especially when it becomes the thing that and then everybody's looking for it yeah the anticipation and then the letdown as to what it is yeah and it never really could keep going but in 1999, with The Sixth Sense, this was a phenomenon, and in many ways, it's probably Shyamalan's best movie. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be up for debate. I do think that there's a certain segment of the film community out there who now thinks Shyamalan is great. I see a lot of people praising some of these things. You can pretty much find that for anybody. Uh-huh. I'm sort of a mixed bag. I, I don't like a lot of his films, but I do like some, and I appreciate what he was trying to do and he does his own thing and it's not always successful but yeah i'm in that camp kind of i do have an appreciation but i really don't watch like any of his movies basically ever i mean i've seen a lot of them (laughs) i've seen most of them i haven't seen all but they're pretty much all a once or twice viewing and then just kind of fade away i know that people were vehemently defending old the beach movie from last year or the year before whenever that was but I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I just couldn't do it. There were too many things that I was hearing that just didn't make sense, and I just I couldn't do it. Now, rewatching this movie, I did have an appreciation for him as a director again, because I do think that there's some really cool shit in this movie, not the twist. You know what I mean? Like, I think there is some other well-done scenes, kind of a cool feel to it. I saw that he's a big fan of The Exorcist. There seems to be some tie-ins there in this sure yeah so there was stuff that i was really enjoying on this viewing and it did give me another appreciation for him but you know the overall filmography just isn't there for me with him it's even debatable 
I guess, if The Sixth Sense qualifies as a horror film. When people talk about how horror is often ignored by the Academy Awards, I don't even necessarily see The Sixth Sense listed. Yeah. You'll see The Silence of the Lambs. You'll see, I don't know, a few other things, but you never really, I don't know that I ever really see The Sixth Sense as, a, as qualifying in that arena or not. I don't know. Yeah. It's almost more emotional than scary. It's sort of a drama with a supernatural horror-tinged element to it. There are yeah. some scenes that are scary, probably especially for younger viewers. The part where he gets like locked in that room upstairs, yeah. even though you don't see anything. <laughs> I'm claustrophobic. <laughs> and they sort of build it up the right way. At that point, yeah. you don't really know exactly what's going on with him, but they more or less have led you to believe that something fucked up is going on with this kid. and Just him being bullied was enough to scare me, really. <laughs> so we're going to take a slightly different approach, as I mentioned. There will probably be scenes and different things that we don't really get into as much. I didn't really think it was worth going through every beat of this plot just to say, and here's a part where, if you know the ending... It makes sense because he's not talking to Bruce Willis or no one's acknowledging Bruce Willis or he doesn't open this door or whatever. It felt like it would be redundant to keep saying it because we know the twist. We wanted to talk about the twist first and just get that out of the way and talk about the impact of that. But then just hit some of the more key moments and focus on those rather than every single scene. Yeah. Even beyond the twist, this movie is sort of a loose collection of events you're not really sure exactly what's propelling the story forward. That is true. You do kind of jump around from scene to scene, and it doesn't feel like there's a natural connective tissue there. And that makes sense once you know the twist. Right. I hate to keep saying that, but yeah, yeah. once you realize what you're building towards, then you're like, oh, okay. Because otherwise, you're just thinking, is Bruce Willis going to help this kid? And then he kind of does, and then he interacts with one ghost and helps her, and then... You're thinking, okay, well, now I guess he has the answer, and he seems to get his confidence back, and he's the star of a play. But that happens very quickly and abruptly. Right. All of that with the Misha Barton thing and then him being in the play, that's like 20 minutes. And I you're know. like, okay. And then finally Cole tells his mother, and then you realize, okay, we've just been building towards a couple of emotional scenes. And that's really what the climax is, the scene in the car and then the very end where it's revealed what's going on with Bruce Willis the whole time. But as you're watching it, you don't know that that's what you're building towards because there's no specific plot because once the audience starts seeing things from Cole's perspective and we actually see the ghosts, a lot of them are only on screen for 30 seconds, a minute, 15 seconds, and then that's it. And then you move on to the next thing. There's yeah. no one force, one ghost, one thing. It's moving on. It's very rapid. There's no one through line other than is Bruce Willis going to figure out how to help this kid? And then eventually he does. Yes. So we'll go through it a little bit different. We still have some notes. We're still going to talk about stuff. But I just wanted to indicate that it's not as thorough and detailed as it usually might be. Because it just didn't seem worth it. Yeah. I know I've brought it up a couple times. But the memory not being there for this movie for certain things. Like the opening credits start after Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment. I'm like, Olivia Williams, Tony Collette. I knew she was in it because you brought it up to me recently, but Olivia Williams, no idea. Donnie Wahlberg, I'm like, oh, okay. He must be the guy in the beginning, but I didn't remember him being in it. Oh, and, yeah. And this, like, you Misha actually would have thought that Donnie Wahlberg was going to have a big career. Yeah, yeah. Because he's unrecognizable and really good. I know. 
not that he doesn't have a career. He has like a TV career, but yeah. it never became this thing. You thought maybe he'd be like a great character actor or something. No, and I actually, going back to watching it the first time, that scene with him, that creeped me out. That shook me a bit. Yeah. The Sixth Sense, which was filmed in sequence, tells the story of Philadelphia child psychologist Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis, and his quest to help a young patient named Cole Sear, played by Haley Joel Osment, who claims he can see and talk to the dead. The opening of the film, which Matt was just referencing, is the Vincent Gray scene. It opens with Crow returning home with his wife, Anna, played by the aforementioned Olivia Williams. After having been honored for his work, it should be a night of celebration. However, a former patient of Malcolm's named Vincent Gray, played by Donnie Wahlberg, breaks into their home. Vincent had suffered from hallucinations, and now he is accusing Malcolm of failing him. He shoots Malcolm before turning the gun on himself, committing suicide in Malcolm and Anna's bathroom. Definitely an intense opening. Yeah. Scary, intense. The viewer doesn't know what's happening. It's all very random and abrupt. Right. At first, he seems like a drug addict home intruder, but then you realize this isn't random. There is a connection. Wahlberg evidently lost 43 pounds oh, for yeah. this role. He looks He's super skinny. Very skinny, unrecognizable. Even before Wahlberg shows up, though, there's a key line from Anna downstairs where she's ostensibly pumping her husband up and telling him how great he is, but she's saying you put everything second, including me, mm-hmm. as part of what she's saying, which is kind of weird, and then it factors into yeah. the emotions at play throughout the rest of the film between the two of them when you think that there's I just know. a failing relationship just going on. Just that one line is enough for us to just believe that this marriage is in disarray for the rest of the movie. Do you know why you're afraid when you're alone? I do, is what Vincent says. So, understanding the Vincent Gray of it all goes a long way towards having the pieces of the film click into place. He refers to his fear and being quote-unquote cursed... The idea is that as his doctor, Malcolm did not adequately address Vincent's issue, and it has worsened over time, driving him mad and evidently pushing him over the edge, which is causing him to show up in Malcolm's home to do this. He has shown back up in Malcolm's life in order to extract some measure of revenge, although we're not really sure why. And this is something we were discussing a little bit before we hit record. The Sixth Sense doesn't really beat you over the head with this stuff. Eventually, obviously, Malcolm is going to listen to an old recording and then make some assumptions based off of that. But even then, they never specifically say... Right. This guy had the same thing as this kid. Yeah, and I think that's easily missable. But this isn't the only time. I guess what I'm saying is the Sixth Sense doesn't hold your hand through this stuff. True, right. You just have to realize Vincent was dealing with the same issue as the one that young Cole Sear is dealing with in present day that we haven't found out about yet, but eventually we will. Right. It becomes Malcolm's unfinished business to atone for failing Vincent by helping Cole, which is another thing that clicks into place once you know the ending of the film. Right. So that's the reason why he's all of a sudden working with Cole, and you have to imagine that there's some higher power involved putting him there because... He's a ghost. It's not as if he's actually 
being assigned to work with Cole. Right. He's just Which all is, of a sudden there, and he thinks he is, because yeah. that's just, I guess, how it works. Yeah. It's weird, because as the scenes go through, he's, I guess, attached to Cole at all times, but when you're watching this at first, it does seem just like, okay, I guess he's doing some sort of... It's almost like a Shutter Island partnership. <laughs> right. Well, I think part of the thing that Shyamalan is doing in the film is he's using the audience's ability to jump to conclusions yes. as part of the plot. A lot of times in movies or TV shows, you're not shown every single detail because it would be ridiculous. Right. That's not how movies work. They don't have to show you every second of a character's life. So they cut out things. And naturally, our brains, who have consumed oh. media, we yeah. put the pieces together ourselves. This guy's been hired to help this kid. Yeah, either someone at the school yeah. or maybe his mother or someone felt like he needed a child psychologist, which is what he does. Cole's getting bullied all the time. You know, you just start doing it yourself. Uh-huh. This is what's happening. But it isn't, obviously. Right. One of the things you'll find online is the theory that Anna also can communicate with the dead or has some sort of ability similar to that of Cole and Vincent Gray. And people pick up on it here because... There's a lot going on in this movie at all times that you may not notice. I don't know if half of it means anything or if yeah. it's red herrings and different things, but shortly before they go upstairs and encounter Vincent, Anna's in the basement and she re- reacts to a chill as if there's a ghost, which is what we learn later. Right. But Vincent isn't a ghost. No. So we don't know what's going on exactly. Yeah. What does that have to do with anything? We don't know. I've always just taken that as she creeped herself out in the basement, which I've done many a time in my life. I always took it that he broke into the house and broke that window and cold air was getting Yeah, in. yeah. I don't know. But people really fixate on her reactions because they do make a conscious choice when Vincent says, do you know why you're afraid when you're alone? I do. They cut to her face and okay. how she reacts to All right. saying it. Maybe there's weird. something there. Yeah. But it does seem like if she was seeing Malcolm the whole time, maybe a little bit more conversation. That's true. And I, I do think that it's sort of a hurdle that is hard to get over when you're going down this road. But yeah. it makes you wonder if there's different levels to it. But it also factors into the end of the film with her ability to seemingly communicate through dream whispering or whatever the fuck you want to call that. (laughs) Because based on how the movie is set up and Cole and talking to his grandmother and then the whole thing with his mom and blah, 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 blah. It seems like that is an acquired special skill or something that not everyone could do. Right. Because why wouldn't the grandmother just talk to Lynn, her daughter? You know what I'm saying? I do. I don't know. Like I said, there's a lot of things in this movie that I'm not really sure if it all makes sense. Yeah. I don't really buy into that theory. I just saw it and I felt like it needed to be addressed that it's possible there's something going on with Anna or we're supposed to take something from that, but it's not in the forefront. It's right. just more in the background. Yeah. Like, oh, maybe there's more to this or something to think about. Whatever. It jumps ahead in time to the next fall. Seemingly surviving the gunshot wound, Malcolm begins working with Cole Sear. While he feels compelled to go above and beyond to help Cole, because Cole reminds him of Vincent, Malcolm also tries reconciling with Anna, who has grown distant and cold. Cole's mother, Lynn, played by Tony Collette, worries about his social skills, especially after seeing signs of physical harm on her son. She is divorced from Cole's father, who is seemingly completely out of the picture. Mm-hmm. 
At a birthday party, Cole is cornered by bullies who lock him in a cupboard, causing him to scream in terror before passing out. It's very traumatic. Definitely. There's that sinister quality of bullies on film where they pretend to be nice in eyesight of the boy's parents, and then it quickly gets shitty. Sort of a weird side story here that one of the kids that bullies him is like a successful actor well, he was in, in commercials. One commercial. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he's like uh, has an ongoing career. <laughs> Stop looking at me. I don't like when people look at me like that. Okay. I walked this way to school with Tommy Tomasino. He your best buddy? He hates me. Do you hate him? No. Did your mom set that up? Yes. Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are with Tommy? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? That I'm a freak. Hey. You are not a freak. Okay? Don't you believe anybody that tries to convince you of that? That's bullshit. You don't have to go through your life believing that. Okay? Come on. You said the S word. Yeah. I know. Sorry. Marissa Tomei was evidently in the mix for Lynn. Hmm. I could see that. Michael Sarah's first ever audition was for Cole. Wow. Apparently he didn't really know what the tone of the movie was and just had one scene to read and played it completely different. The last names of the characters you can read into a little bit. Crow, associated with death. Black. Seer, like seer. Oh, yeah. Like he sees things. Gray, caught in between the two of white and black. Death and life. Yeah. There are some scenes that you kind of have to point out the absurdity once you know the twist. The one that always jumps out to me is when Malcolm is late to the anniversary dinner and he shows up at the restaurant. And I think in retrospect, it seems so obvious Uh because even the waiter doesn't actually ask him if he wants anything, which would always happen if a second guest arrives at at the table. He doesn't move the chair. The chair is just like sort of out and he sits in it. Yeah. That's the thing that drives me nuts about this movie, because you'll read, oh, if you notice, Malcolm never manipulates things. He can't pick things up. He can't yeah. change things. But, but sometimes he does. He does yeah. sometimes, like the audio recording right. and the tape player. And parentheses, here's all the times he does, though. And yeah, like, I know. Okay, well, that <laughs> wasn't really a hard and fast rule, I guess. <laughs> I did always appreciate Malcolm's use of the name Cheese Dick. Yes, that is Referring nice. to a guy that's sniffing around about Anna. Right. Yeah, I found myself relating to his anger over that situation. Keep moving, cheese dick. (laughs) One of the weirder scenes is when Cole says that their school used to be used for hanging people because it used to be a courthouse, and the teacher disagrees with him. I know. Cole, who always feels bullied and has this trigger about when people look at him a certain way, starts freaking out. This seems to be his most triggering moment. I don't remember him being this angry with any of the kids that are bullying him. Well... I guess you could interpret this scene in a lot of different ways. But he starts screaming at the teacher, stuttering Stanley, and the teacher starts stuttering, and apparently he had overcome a stutter at some point in his life. At this point in the film, if you hadn't seen a trailer or a commercial, 
you may not know what's going on with Cole because it isn't actually said yet. Right. It isn't said until he actually says the famous line to Malcolm later. Even knowing the twist, I'm a little bit miffed by what's going on here. Well, no, I think especially because yeah. it doesn't make it, you have right. to start doing a bunch of work on your own to yeah, yeah. piece together how this makes sense because how does he know this about this teacher? It's unclear. This makes it seem as if his secret that he hasn't talked about is something else entirely yeah. as if he can know things about people. The, the only shining. thing you can come up with is that a ghost told him. Yeah. Because they do reference that there was a fire and people were killed when that teacher went to that school. Right. That comes up later. Okay, yeah. So that's the only thing that makes sense, and you can kind of excuse it away. But at this point in the proceedings, Malcolm hasn't told Cole to talk to the ghost yet because he hasn't even told Malcolm yet what the secret is. And it really implies in the movie that he doesn't talk to them yet, and he's afraid of them. How right. he knows this thing about this teacher, I'm not really sure. Yeah. It seems almost deliberately designed to throw you off of what's going on, even though the trailer tells you what's going on. I don't know. Well, things do escalate quickly in this classroom sequence. It speaks to the power of the ending yeah. and how this film goes that you kind of just ignore shit like this, where you're kind of like, well, does this make sense? I don't yeah. know. Kid, you're frightening me by yelling, stuttering Stanley repeatedly. So let's get to the big reveal here. I see dead people. Yeah. Following the incident at the birthday party where he had a meltdown after getting bullied, Cole finally confides in Malcolm. The big secret is revealed. Cole says that he sees ghosts, dead people, as he puts it, walking around like the living. They don't know they're dead. But they are unaware that they are dead, which (laughs) also conflicts with stuff that he says later. Camera slowly zooming in on Bruce Willis's face. Yeah, in the scene where Cole says, I see dead people, the camera does do a close-up on Bruce Willis's face. Producer Frank Marshall was worried that might have given the game away. It implied that Malcolm was a dead person. Fortunately, none of the audiences in the test screenings or afterwards picked up yeah. on it. It's I right there, but... Yeah, I think you couldn't recreate stuff like this, but at 1999, I'm sure most people were thinking Bruce Willis is the star of this movie. Yeah. I don't know that people were expecting twist endings that often. That's true. I'm not saying that The Sixth Sense invented twist endings. Of course it didn't. But I think in general, people wouldn't have been thinking that that was a possibility because it just didn't happen very much. Yeah. Especially in a big movie with Bruce Willis. Right. You're thinking he's the main character of the movie, more so than the kid. Who was an unknown. This is Haley Joel Osment's first film. so You're not expecting your hero... Right. To be dead. In 12 Monkeys from four years prior, Bruce Willis's character, James Cole, oddly enough, says, all I see are dead people, which echoes the words said by Haley Joel Osment's character, Cole Sears, Wow. when he says, I see dead people. Both movies happen to be set in Philadelphia. Sort of a weird Connection. coincidence there. So the rules seem to be set out. They don't see each other, the dead people. They only see what they want to see, which speaks to their own delusion that they're not dead. That they're sort of walking around trying to finish some sort of unfinished business, but they don't know what's going on. Now, another one of these things that we've talked about is most of the dead people that Cole sees are still affected by the way that they died. Whereas Malcolm, you're not seeing him bleeding from his gut. Well, that would have just been a giveaway. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea is that 
Cole can see the blood. Okay. But they just don't show it to the audience because right. they would just give it away. Okay, yeah, I can buy that. Because he does, I think, look at his stomach the first time mm. he comes into the church. I yeah. think there are things that when you know the ending, that if you pay attention to what Cole does, leads you to believe that Cole knows all along that he's right. dead. So how would he know? Yeah, oh, he's yeah. got a big gaping bullet hole in his stomach that mm-hmm. Bruce Willis is unaware of because he doesn't know he's dead. Right. But yeah, you you kind of have to manipulate it a little bit so that it's just not a giveaway the whole Definitely. time, obviously. Yeah. In this moment in the hospital, it's a top-notch performance from both of them. It's well-written and executed, endlessly parodied. Oh, yeah. Endlessly quoted. And replicated. And this is a time when movies still provided us with quotes that would last forever. Yeah. Which is something I've been thinking about a lot lately because when we go to AMC, the theater we go to, there's those quotes written on the walls as if they were like stencils, you know, know. decorating the wallpaper or whatever. Time forgotten. And yeah, they try to crowbar stuff in there from maybe super bad or things that came out in the earlier 2000s. But at a certain point with the movie quotes... It's kind of like Titanic and then Sixth Sense, and I don't know. You you, you sort, sort of, of don't have as away. many memorable quotes anymore. Yeah, that is true. Because you don't have movies that really capture that, the zeitgeist yeah, like this. I know, yeah. Which I think is part of the prerequisite for having memorable quotes. Yeah, this is one that was quotable right from the trailers. Malcolm, as to be expected, immediately reverts to the logical explanation and believes Cole is delusional. He also, in his own recording, says, I'm not helping him, he mutters. And he actually considers dropping Cole's case altogether. And at this point, there's a shift in the film. We've been let in a little bit. And so now we're going to experience an actual sample of what Cole's been experiencing. It becomes a little bit more traditional horror. There's ghosts that are angry, frustrated, irrational. And, of course, to a young child, this is all very overwhelming. So he's reacting in fear. He's running away. Some of the ghosts have these ghastly wounds. I got to tell you, this disorder in reality, you would go insane. Well, that's what happened to Vincent Gray. Yep. As we mentioned before, I think that in the lore of this film, it's when the ghosts are angry or in heightened emotional states that the world around them turns cold and that's when you can see characters breath Mm -hmm. the temperature drops suddenly all of this is a huge frustration for lynn cole's mother she doesn't know what's wrong or how to help her son who she clearly loves a lot but is overwhelmed with bills and she has to work two jobs and then everything seems to be going wrong oh yeah i think she's pretty strong in the scene like at the doctor's office like when M. Night Shyamalan's actually in the movie. And she's like having that like whole meltdown about like, hello, there is something wrong with my son. Yeah, it's a great performance from Colette, who we praised endlessly for Hereditary. This would have been like almost 20 years earlier. And at that point, I didn't really know who she was, obviously. I think the first time that I even realized I knew her from multiple things was about a boy, which was a couple years later which I always thought was a very hilarious movie. Oh, yeah. But I would have never known she was not American. She plays a tough Philly mom in a way yeah, that's, that's very right. believable. Absolutely. I did love that scene. It's almost included mostly for humor, 
where Anna works at, I don't know what that store is supposed to be. <laughs> is it a jewelry store or is it know. an antique yeah. type store? I can't really tell what's going on, but they have these rings and then there's that young couple. I was thinking it was a jewelry store, but maybe it is more antique. Yeah, because there's like the other stuff and yeah. then that guy was like, I'm going to go to this place and see what I can find. Right. Whatever. I don't know, but there's a couple who want to buy this ring. Yes, and apparently it's a little too pricey for the guy. Right. And the the woman is like, "Oh, you want to look at a plain ring for your plain bride?" <laughs> it's like this beautiful woman, and she's like all upset. And I don't know. It's it's a very funny little scene. Definitely for no reason, really. Yeah. On the verge of giving up Cole's case in order to repair his relationship with Anna, Malcolm digs through his files and pulls out an old audio tape session with Vincent Gray. On the tape, Malcolm leaves Vincent alone for a moment to take a phone call. Amidst the silence in the room, on the recording, there is a soft voice that begins speaking in Spanish, if you translate it fully. It says, please, I don't want to die, Lord. Save me. Save me. This is all it takes. It clicks into place for Malcolm, at least partially. And he recognizes the similarities between Cole and Vincent and now realizes that the ghosts Cole sees are real, which, of course, is movie logic. I think Yeah. in real life, at best, you could say might be real, <laughs> but in it's a movie, so he's yeah. going with it. I would think if you're from the scientific community, your first thought here is that Vincent's doing this voice. Maybe, but he's a little kid at the time. Yeah, I know. How does he know how to just speak? Well, I think I, that's why they made it another language. Right, yeah. It definitely is reminiscent of stuff you would see in exorcism type right. movies where you start playing with the different languages. Like, oh, this voice coming out of this little girl is Latin or something. But, you know, then they always diagnose that stuff as schizophrenia. Yeah. A, a misdiagnosis, maybe. People refuse to believe. Yep. Malcolm's idea to help Cole is to have the boy attempt to communicate with the ghosts and help them finish their earthly business in the hopes that they will then leave. Cole hesitantly agrees because, of course, the boy is terrified. He's going to have to talk to these freaks. <laughs> and it is sort of a jump to conclusion move by Crow, who didn't even believe that these ghosts were real up until a few minutes ago and all of a sudden he's got ideas but okay here's what you gotta do kid you know what i don't really want to talk to the person hanging or like running around screaming yeah a big bullet hole in in their head (laughs) dripping blood everywhere that only i can see (laughs) so we're pretty deep into the movie at this point it takes a while just to get to where cole tells malcolm that he sees dead people then a few more scenes have to happen. At this point, in an hour and 50-minute movie, you're basically already at past the hour mark when you start getting into, well past it, really, when you get into the Misha Barton segment of the film. Yes. Which is its own little mini-movie. Agreed. If you could figure out how to address the Cole character fast enough, like in about three or four minutes, and then just tack that on to the beginning so you understand it, you could make this its own movie. Absolutely. Because it's sort of unrelated to everything else that's going on, but it's its own little contained Sharp story. objects. Yeah, again, this is a time where maybe a lot of people weren't as familiar with Munchausen by proxy, and the movie doesn't ever say that word, that illness, and right. doesn't even explain what is going on, but you just sort of have to put it together, which I think now 
because of things like Sharp Objects or know. numerous other shows and yeah. movies, I think people kind of get what that is now. I know. This segment was significant, though, to me. The impact it has on you, you're like, wow, that is dark. Yeah, and it's very sad. Yeah. Like Even the little part at the end where he's giving that little doll to the sister, and right. the sister's like, is Kira coming back? And he's like, not anymore. But he means that in a good way. Yeah. But I'm sure the little <laughs> sister was thinking... I don't know, understand what's happening. Is I my mean, sister coming back? I want my sister to be alive. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Thank God I don't have to see her ghosts anymore. Yeah. The girl's like, what? <laughs> the first ghost that we actually see, or really the only one that we see Cole interact with in a way to help, is a young girl happens to be played by Misha Barton. Stunning. <laughs> I was like, wow. I cannot you didn't believe. remember she was in this No, either. I didn't. I obviously didn't know then. I had, yeah. The OC was three right. years away, but I found out later yeah. in retrospect that she was that girl. It's one of those things that maybe I knew at one point, but wasn't fresh in the memory. So yeah, she's vomiting all over the place. Disgusting. It's kind of scary because me out as a kid. he thinks that he's running away from her because he thinks something's happening, like a ghost is showing up, and then all of a sudden she's in his tent yeah. that he made with, with him. But that's the thing. Part of it is that he has to overcome these fears. You could look at it maybe in a bigger way of overcoming the fear of death or these kind of things. Because even though a lot of the death we see in the film is traumatic and upsetting, what? the idea is that she doesn't know she's dead. She's yeah. she's a scared girl that's upset and crying and right. sick because of what's happening to her. And you have to get past the fact that she's a ghost and that it's upsetting to him. Because from her perspective, she's just... Throwing up. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the logic doesn't fully make sense to me because the whole thing of not knowing they're dead, yet she's come to get him. Right. To tell the story of how she was killed. I agree. So some of this stuff doesn't really make sense. Not necessarily consistent. You also have to factor in he's just a kid. Yeah. So maybe he doesn't really know the rules. Right. So we have to take him as sort of an unreliable rule giver to what's going on. That is true. Maybe yeah. some of them don't know they're dead, but some of them do. I don't know. So anyway, he goes to the funeral reception for this girl. When you're watching it and you don't know what's going on with Malcolm, it's a little weird because there's this man and a small boy who just show up. Oh yeah, it does seem like they're doing something sort of insensitive here and crashing a funeral reception yeah but in reality it's just a little boy wandering in that no one's paying attention yeah. to it's not an adult that's right him. yeah apparently this is where Shyamalan first got the idea was he saw a boy at a funeral reception sitting by himself oh, and he really? started to come up with this whole thing about who's he talking to over there maybe it's the person that just died like wow, it became this okay. whole thing yeah yeah which we'll get to at the end because the idea of where the sixth sense came from has always been an urban legend and that's a sort of its own <laughs> okay. fun story yeah. to talk about. Anyway, Kira, the little girl who died, is leads him to this videotape. Uh-huh. He gives the videotape to the girl's father. Right. Who decides to play it during the funeral. Shocking. Yeah. At first, it's this girl recording her own little marionette puppet show. I know. If you don't like the way I dance, you can kick me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a weird thing to say. But anyway, it seems like in the context of the video that she has to almost pretend she's still sick. Right. She's feeling better, but then she hops back into bed as if she's still sick and then pretending when her mom comes in. You don't know what's going on. 
at first the father seems amused to yeah, watch his sure. daughter do this little show and he's kind of crying and all of a sudden we have something prominently displayed in the frame <laughs> yeah, just like, framed I, perfectly. I, well i was like this is like product placement for munchausen by proxy <laughs> <laughs> we see that the mother is poisoning the girl's food with some sort of household cleaning product of some kind <laughs> and it's clear to us now in Ugh. 2022 because of true crime podcasts yeah, yeah. and that one show with Joey King and right, <laughs> I think Patricia Arquette is the yeah. mother. Yeah, we know what Munchausen by proxy is, and it's a situation where a mental illness leads usually a mother, but sometimes a father, but usually a mother to hurt their own child because they're, I guess, addicted in some weird way to the sympathy that they get and the yeah. attention that they get from and like it. nursing them back. Yeah, they like to have this thing that gets them attention and gets them sympathy and gets them noticed and. It's a whole thing. But anyway, it's important to Cole and to the father here because there's a, not only to reveal the truth, obviously, that's the obvious part, right. but there's another little girl in the house that could be in danger now. If you pay attention to what people are saying at the reception, you can kind of pick up on it. She was always sick. Doctors couldn't figure it out. Yeah, you know, yeah. like They're kind of saying stuff like that. By the way, what do you think the scene became in this place? I like, know. Immediately I was like, following. That's the movie I want to see. I don't know. I, I would have to leave yeah. almost. Yeah. <laughs> That's almost too uncomfortable. It's wild. Yeah. Because it seems like the way that it's shot that other people have started to gather around and are right. watching this tape too. And he basically accuses or I guess makes the declaration, you were the one making her sick. Yeah. So pretty strong evidence for the mother to go to jail. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, and then it ends on that heartbreaking little moment on the swing set where I guess Kira told Cole that her sister wanted this doll or something and he gives her the little doll and then the little girl's asking if Kara's coming back and Cole just with no chill. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> He's only worried about it. He's himself. like one down for me. Yeah. Learning to not be afraid of the ghosts he sees, Cole begins to fit in at school and is cast as the lead in the school play with the ghost of a dead teacher helping coach him, which is sort of weird, but whatever. It's a little shock moment where this woman is talking to him and then that teacher who he called Stuttering Stanley comes in and then the teacher's like, who are you talking to? And then the woman turns and you see like half oh, of right. her burn off yeah. like friggin' what's-his-face from Breaking Bad. <laughs> That's like, Frank. Fix, fixing her tie. Yeah. He delivers an outstanding performance with Malcolm looking on. Before parting ways with Malcolm, Cole suggests that he try speaking to Anna while she is asleep to communicate better with her. It's a pretty big clue because of the next scene where he talks yeah. about talking to... Although, no, you know what? That's not true because they do set up something earlier in the film where Lynn, Cole's mother, is having a nightmare and Cole comes in and talks to her and puts his hand on her face but never wakes her up and she sort of like calms down. So they're right. sort of setting up maybe a little misdirection about the talking in the sleep thing and what that could mean. Yeah. At this point in the movie, I, I don't know that I'm good with the fact that Malcolm's work here is done. Maybe we should try this on a couple more <laughs> ghosts and see where that goes. I yeah, mean, it's probably not always going to be that easy yeah. because Kira was just a little girl. Sometimes it's like these b adults that are like freaking out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Having like meltdowns. Abused wives yeah. and murdered gangsters. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Who knows? Yeah. But Malcolm's like, well, my work here is done. <laughs> You have to remember, he can't see the ghosts, yeah. so it's all a mystery to him right. what's going on. Yeah. 
Later, while stuck in traffic, Cole finally tells his mother his secret, saying that someone died in an accident down the road. At first, she doesn't believe him, but Cole tells her that his late grandmother has also visited him. Mm-hmm. Powerful scene here. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She dislikes it a lot. What? Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Cole, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, please She stop. wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come to see you dance. She did. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. She said you were like an angel. She said you came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. She said, the answer is, every day, what did you ask? Cole provides details he could not have possibly known, and so Lynn finally accepts that this is actually her son's reality, and they tearfully embrace. It's a very effective scene. Great acting by yep. both of them. You fully buy into this, even though, like I said, you start to question it because Cole has told us that the ghosts he sees don't know that they're dead, yet his grandmother references... Lynn coming to the place where they buried her. So obviously she knows she's dead and she apologizes for moving the bumblebee pendant and all this shit. So there's a little bit of inconsistencies, but you're so overwhelmed by the power of the scene that you're not thinking like that. I think you raise a good point about who we heard the rules from, because I do think that it's just like some of them know. Okay. At a minimum, some of these ghosts clearly Kira knew because why is she setting this up? Right. Exactly. To reveal how she was killed. And then, also, the grandmother seems to know. And then he talks about how the grandmother talks to him, and then you kind of tie that in with the end of the film and how Malcolm talks to his wife. And it does seem like they're suggesting that the dead can communicate through talking to someone when they're asleep. Yeah. And that sort of opens like a larger thing beyond just someone seeing the ghosts. There's this whole other level to it. And... I guess it's fair to assume that there's more than we would just learn in the movie. That once True. you open the possibility yeah. of a connection between the living and dead, that there might be other stuff too. Right. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't I think exactly just... have like a teacher or anything, like sh- anyone showing him the ropes here. Yeah, I think that we've established that it doesn't matter right. with this movie. Correct. It's, yes. It's all about building towards the powerful moments and then going from there. Malcolm returns home to find Anna talking in her sleep after once again passing out while watching their wedding video. 
Yeah, you are like the second time the wedding video has been on. <laughs> Anna, you got to put a little effort in here. Still asleep, she asks Malcolm why he left her. Much to his confusion, he doesn't understand. He says, "I didn't." When she suddenly drops Malcolm's wedding ring, he notices for the first time that he's not wearing it on his finger. This plays into they only see what they want to see, obviously. That's a pretty big thing to get out there early in the movie so that right. you can explain away some of this stuff. And it, it makes sense, in a way. Yeah. Whatever they're experiencing as ghosts is not how we experience life anymore, but they just think it is. It's sort of like when you're in a dream and you don't know you're dreaming. Right. It isn't really like real life at all, but no. you don't realize that it's a dream. So you think it's real, even though in retrospect, you're like, what the fuck was that? That wasn't real. <laughs> I was like, Wait, I'm not still in college, am I? I forgot I had this class. I didn't drop it. Yeah. <laughs> every <laughs> time, I, like, yeah, every, I like every three months of my life, I have that. I finally stopped having those. Yeah. And I finally stopped having the dreams where I worked at Dollar General, <laughs> which were ongoing. Anyway. Which was always a dream. <laughs> yeah. Even when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> I miss you. I miss you too. Why, Malcolm? What? What is it? What? Why did you leave me? Leave you. Bruce Willis actually learned to write with his right hand because he is actually left handed to hide that he wasn't wearing a wedding ring. Although, I don't know that anyone really would have been paying attention. You could have just not worn one, and I don't think anyone would have noticed. Well, we appreciate the uh, commitment either way. Recalling what Cole told him about dead people only seeing what they want to see and not knowing they are dead, Malcolm finally realizes he did not survive being shot by Vincent and has been dead while working with Cole. He now comes to terms with his death and tells Anna that he loves her. She bids him goodnight, indicating that she is at peace. With his business now complete, Malcolm's spirit departs in a flash of light. Throughout the film... Malcolm's wardrobe consists of only slight variations of the clothes he was wearing the night that he died. So anything he wore or touched in that opening scene yeah. is in play. That way they can kind of disguise it so he's not wearing the exact same thing. Right. There's little variations so you won't notice. He wears that sweater that like it almost seems tattered. I think we've talked about it enough, but there are some inconsistencies with Malcolm. He does touch and move things. No one talks to him. They do a decent job of disguising some of the obvious stuff, but there are a few things that seem a little inconsistent. There's the whole thing with the basement door, which they always cut at the right time so yeah. you don't actually see him open the door. Things like that, but then, yeah, he does move boxes, open the tape, put on the tape recorder. There's stuff that they just sort of right. have to have happen, I guess. And yeah. that plays in with some of the inconsistencies we've mentioned with Cole's rules. Right. I think we're in agreement that we don't necessarily buy into Anna being in some way gifted in that same sense. I just think that they're going for the dead can talk to the living and that's it. I don't know why there's emphasis on Anna at the opening of the film with Vincent. Not only does it cut to her, 
it seems like Vincent is looking at her a couple of times. Yeah. Maybe everyone in the movie's dead. Have we considered that? <laughs> Lynn's dead. Yeah. Vincent's dead. Anna's dead. Malcolm's dead. <laughs> Everyone's dead. I don't know. It's like lost. And the plane went down, people. So now let's get into the color red a little bit, which is always a thing with, with Shyamalan. He deliberately uses the color red to depict when the world of the living and the world of the dead would cross over. If red was in a scene where that was not the case, he would change it. Oh, yeah. The door to the church where Cole and Malcolm first interact is red, and the statue Cole takes from the church has a red robe. The doorknob to Malcolm's basement is red. Cole's school uniform jacket is a maroonish red. He is often approached by the dead people while at school and or wearing the uniform. Anna wears a red dress at the restaurant where Malcolm is late for their anniversary. When Malcolm is watching his wife Anna in the shower and notices her prescription in the cabinet for the first time, it is a reddish-brown container. Lynn Sears' nail polish is red when she is pointing out the white spots, the ghosts, oh, yeah. on all of the pictures of Cole in the hallway. Cole's, quote, free association writing is in red ink when she finds those weird things he's written all over the place. Mm-hmm. The writing presumably records things he has heard from the dead. At the birthday party, all the visible balloons are pastel-colored, except for the red balloon that floats up the stairway and leads Cole to the small closet. Shades of it here. Cole is wearing a red sweater when he is attacked by the spirit in the closet. Cole's blanket at the hospital is reddish when he confesses to Malcolm that he sees dead people. The birthday gift Anna gives to Sean is in a red box, and she is wearing red when the two of them embrace, and Malcolm breaks the shop door. When Malcolm listens to a tape session with Vincent, as he turns up the cassette recorder volume, the control numbers go from white to red. Mm. Kira appears in Cole's fort, and the blanket covering it is red. The box containing Kira's VHS tape is trimmed in red and has a red-lined interior. The outfit worn by Mrs. Collins at Kira's wake is bright red, and she's the only person wearing a bright color, which is also so fucked up and yes, garish. Yes, I know. Because she's the center of attention. Yeah. She gets to have all these people tell her how sorry she is that the daughter's dead. It's so sick that even to the point where they push it to death, they still get that high from all that attention. I know. Yeah. We're just turning this into yeah. a Munchausen by proxy pod. <laughs> In the video, the soup Mrs. Collins brings to Kira is tomato soup and the bottle of pine cleaner Mrs. Collins adds to the soup has a red cap on it. The bicyclist Cole sees next to the car is wearing a red helmet. The blanket that Anna Crow covers herself while watching the wedding video is red. So, so when you tell read me all of that, here. Yeah. it sounds like a ton of red. Yeah, There's not a ton of red in this movie. Right. There's a deliberate drabness to most of it. So when yeah, there is red, dull. it stands out. Right. So let's get into the urban legend I was referencing Please. earlier. Now that we've I'm interested. gone through the plot. I even sort of took this information... Because it was so prevalent and out there. I'm sure I'll remember this when you say it. That it became part of the lore of this film, especially when people turned on M. Night Shyamalan. Because it became, well, M. Night Shyamalan only had one good movie and he stole that idea. Mm. Which is something that became part of it when people were pissed. I don't know that people necessarily think he stole the idea, but a lot of people probably have seen this other tidbit and think he got the idea from... Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh. 
Season three, episode ten. I didn't. I don't remember this. The tale of the dream girl wow. was aired on March twenty sixth, nineteen ninety four. I've almost certainly seen this episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? I did rewatch it for this. Wow. Because I wanted to remember which one they were talking about. And I did remember it once I started watching it. A young man finds a ring in his locker at work only to discover he is ignored by those around him except his sister and then this unknown dream girl. It's a guy who works at a bowling alley. Mm, yeah. There's this beautiful girl that suddenly shows up, but he can't quite talk to her. The episode heavily implies that the girl is dead and a ghost, but it turns out that he is too. Oh, yeah, right. Yes, I do remember this. Up, yeah, And it is sort of like The Sixth Sense uh-huh. because he doesn't know he's dead, but it almost takes it a step further because he doesn't remember anything about his death, which also includes this girl. So he doesn't even remember that he knew this girl oh, in real wow, life okay. and this whole thing. So the ending reveal is kind of similar. The story itself is nothing like The Sixth Sense, but the idea is similar. This urban legend became so prevalent that it's just on IMDb. And not only the trivia for The Sixth Sense, which goes both ways, it has that M. Night Shyamalan was inspired by that episode, and it also has... M. Night Shyamalan has said in an interview that he never saw Are You Afraid of the Dark and didn't even know what it was. And so it sort of completely refutes it. But if you go on the trivia for Which makes that me not like him. episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, it says that it was the inspiration for The Sixth Sense. It's just out there. Yeah, it used yeah. to be on Wikipedia. I think they deleted it because of the recent interview where it's sort of kind of been debunked. So I'll read Shyamalan's quote from the interview. He says, that's really weird. I don't think I've ever seen that show. I don't want to ignore something that might have been an influence, but nothing rings a bell when you say that. I remember specifically the notebook I was writing in, and it was about a little boy at a funeral. That was the first image that came to mind, and he was on the stairs talking to no one. Then in my mind, I was wondering if he was talking to the person that had died at the funeral. That kind of stimulated the story. I do think that Shyamalan would have been a little too old to probably have been watching. I think so, yeah. Are You Afraid of the Dark in 1994? He was directing movies already. Yeah, he had already had his first film at that point. It's sort of like when people found that Scrooge McDuck cartoon and thought that (laughs) that was the inspiration (laughs) for Inception. Because it's so crazy that it seems almost exactly like Inception and it's some random cartoon. Which, you know, if we ever revisit Inception, maybe we'll get back into that again. But (laughs) I just think it's parallel thinking. I don't really believe that he saw this episode and then took that to make it a movie. And even if he did, it's not similar enough, in my opinion, for it to be a big deal. Sure. But the way that it was out there on the internet for a while, it did make it seem as if he had plagiarized his most well-known and best film. (laughs) Which is (laughs) not a great thing. No. But that sort of played into the whole backlash against Shyamalan which I was referencing before which was well he only had one good film and that one was stolen anyway yeah yeah. he pinched it kind of the idea out there but anyway that was kind of a fun episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark by the way great show 
I it, love Are You Afraid of the it's Dark. It's really cheap and yeah, yeah. shitty looking, but some of the stories are really effective. Like no, that there's one, some great episodes. For a story for kids. I know. To it, have a character who was a ghost the whole time. I think that Goosebumps did something similar, actually, too. Not the TV show, but yeah, the yeah. books. Maybe they did it as a show, too, but whatever. I know. remember a Goosebumps book where someone was dead the whole time, too. But, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So, The Sixth Sense. It's one of those things where it was a moment in time. I think everyone needs to see it once, even if they already know the big twist. I think it's worth checking out at least one Definitely. time. But it's probably not one of those ones you're going to revisit all the time. You're going to need a long time in between to kind of forget about it a little bit and then yeah, experience it again. But like I said, I was enjoying it on more than just the twist and everything tied to the twist. There are like some really strong scenes in the movie. Yeah, some good acting, especially from Tony Collette and Haley yeah. Joel Osment, who were both nominated. If you want to know what Matt looks like, <laughs> look Google at Haley Joel, Haley Joel Osment 2022. <laughs> They're basically twins. Oh, boy. Not a great look. His appearance in Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, how the fuck are you in this movie? I kept looking at you next to me watching the movie, and I'm like, were you in this? <laughs> What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, so in lieu of recommendations, although maybe these will be recommendations to you, you can find these films now on streaming, we're going to talk about two pretty recent horror releases since we're in the middle of the greatest October I figured we couldn't not talk about these films yeah we've covered movies from these franchises on this podcast one of them is way more high profile because it's also in theaters and I think it's opening at number one with a pretty big weekend and Mm. the other one's a little bit more under the radar and I'm not sure that everyone will be checking out we're of course talking about the new Hellraiser film which you can find on Hulu which evidently is a remake, although it doesn't feel that way. It's kind of hard to believe because the story is nothing like the original Hellraiser, and it's a remake in the sense that it has the same name. We're going to talk about that pretty quickly. I think there's a lot less to say about it, and then we're going to talk about Halloween Ends, which could probably be its own. Give us a second with how much we could talk <laughs> oh about boy. it. I know just from following some of our listeners back on Twitter that our listenership has completely different views on this film some Mm. people seem to love it some people hate it it's clearly a polarizing halloween entry so that one we'll spend a little bit more time on first we'll talk about hellraiser which is on hulu right now it's been a long time coming yeah the guys that made super dark times made this film they actually made a film in between called the night house oh with the actress from the town rebecca what's her name hall Rebecca Hall. Yeah. Which has nothing to do with Hellraiser, but that actually started as a Hellraiser script. And then I guess they just oh, wow. excised the Hellraiser stuff and made it on their own because this was in developmental hell for so long. <laughs> developmental Hellraiser. <laughs> Folks. When I went to check it in on Letterboxd, there's like a shocking amount of Hellraiser movies. Most of them are terrible. Doug Bradley played Pinhead up until I think maybe the last two or three of that initial run but there's so many of them you're Mm -hmm. right i don't think i've seen anywhere near all of them probably not even half no 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 not for me either (laughs) 
Hellraiser 1 is awesome. Hellraiser 2 is awesome but disgusting and the type of movie that you don't want to watch a lot because okay. it's very gross. Hellraiser 3 is okay. And then I didn't love Hellraiser 4, to be honest, but some people do like it. And then after that, I don't really know. But they brought it back. Yeah. They have a different person playing Pinhead. It's not really related to those ones because they're not considering this a sequel. It's its own thing. The reason why I don't have a ton to say about it, and I know that this ends up sounding like old man yelling at clouds at uh-huh. a certain point, but the movie was so dark, and I mean literally, that I didn't know what was happening through much of it. Now, I don't know if this was something going on with my TV. It doesn't seem to affect anything else that I've been watching over the last few days, but I'm not joking. Yeah. I did not know what was going on through 90% of the film. It was at least ninety percent. It is dark. It wasn't quite to that extent for me, but I don't know if my window something was going on. I don't know. Sometimes I it is. Tell what the fuck was happening. Sometimes when it's like if it's light outside and you're trying to watch a darker movie, it's like I think almost it was impossible. Yeah. Maybe I should have waited till it was dark and turned everything but, off and everything. But I, you know, I got to tell you, I don't feel like you would come back and be like, "Oh man, completely different experience." I'm a hundred percent in now. Yeah, so it was mostly an auditory experience for me, even though <laughs> Pinhead at one point says, we have such sights to show you, and I was thinking, okay. Well, where are they? Yeah, I'm not seeing them. <laughs> I did see some of it, obviously. Yeah. You could kind of make it out, but it was very dark. The story seems to be somewhat lifted from the Evil Dead remake, where you have sort of a weird yeah. relationship between a brother and sister, and then the sister has a drug problem, and that's a big part of it. I know that you experienced someone defending the film vehemently on Letterboxd. I know well, that some people like sentence, it. But yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's doing okay on Letterboxd. Yeah. But I got to tell you, as someone who read The Hellbound Heart and enjoys the original film a lot. I think the original film was super cool, and I didn't think that this felt anything like that, really. There's a darkness in humanity that is a part of the original film that di- dives into a sexual depravity that is completely absent from this film. This film has almost nothing to do with sex in a way. It tries to at the beginning. Imply I feel like they that there's hint like a, at it with the rich guy. But yeah, there's yeah. like sort of an eyes wide shut guy at the beginning. But it doesn't really play into the main characters very much. The main characters didn't register for me at all. I couldn't really tell yeah. who they were, what, what their relationship was. A lot of people's palms getting cut by this thing. I don't know. It's I, not a terrible film, but it's a nothing. And I do know that... Because this is uh, what somebody kind of called out my letterbox review about, but and I do know that this whole making deals with the Cenobites is kind of like part of the original thing. But I just felt like that was happening. Like at a certain point, they like kept. Well, let's check back in on the deal. Yeah, I have to admit that at a certain point, I was losing interest. Yeah, there were yeah. some cool visuals at the very end where that one guy seemingly is becoming a Cenobite. Uh huh. But it didn't really hold my interest. I just think there's something missing from it that was, to me, essential in the idea of Hellraiser, which was these people that pursue this box are fucked up to begin with. Uncle Frank. I love I love all the Uncle Frank stuff in the original movie. These are people who don't get boners from regular things anymore. <laughs> They've chased that rabbit way too far down the <laughs> rabbit hole. They're interested in depraved fucked up shit and that's the whole idea of pain and pleasure with this fucking box and 
I think a part of Hellraiser is about losing yourself in that idea, which is, yeah. in a way, you could make it more prescient in modern times. When fucking Hellraiser came out, they didn't even have internet porn yet. Like, I think now it's so easy to lose yourself in the very specific... I'd say so, yeah. ...fucked up stuff, and people lose their ability to have intimacy with real people because yeah. you're so... You know, I don't want to reveal... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go too, yeah, reveal really. too much, but you know what I'm saying. And I think that's just absent from this movie. It's almost as if they didn't get that part of it. They have the girl getting fucked at the beginning, and you think that it's going somewhere. like, But it, no, know, it doesn't. Yeah. And I don't know. It just... I mean, to me, it's another example, too, of I haven't seen Super Dark Time. I want to watch it. It's one of those ones that I... Well, yeah, I must admit that I have not seen either of these guys' other two films. But I've it, heard Super Dark Times is awesome. Yeah, and... The Nighthouse, it seems like people were pretty split on. If there's something there, I don't really want to see their version of Hellraiser. I want to see them do something like... Well, that's just how it is. I know. You gotta play the game. Yeah, but I don't know. It just it kind of dragged on for me a bit, too. I was kind of getting to the yeah. point where I'm like, all right, when they first got to the house, I was getting back in but it did just sort of drag for i me. think the original hellraiser is like an hour and a half maybe a little bit more and masterpiece it, yeah it tells like a much <laughs> yeah. better story more coherently quicker and you get it and everything that's going on with him sort of being reconstructed is really yeah cool. the practical effects are yeah. awesome and you get it without even a ton of nudity or sex but like it feels very sexual right. because the whole idea is this seemingly normal woman yeah. is now so depraved that she's going to murder men just to bring this fucking ghoul back to life so she could Because he was a great lay. <laughs> her husband's brother. Yeah, the original Hellraiser is just great. I know. I didn't feel like this was anything like that. I know. They changed it, and it was certainly not for the better. And it was a big nothing burger, which brings us to a movie that I would definitely describe as something rather than nothing, even though... <laughs> People seem to hate it, and some people seem to love it, and I'm talking about Halloween Ends, the final installment of the David Gordon Green Halloween trilogy, which for me has sucked. I know yeah. that some of our listeners have enjoyed it way more than I have to this point. I thought Halloween 2018 was just a mediocre to bad sequel, but... Oh, the, Fine. When I walked out of it, I was not hating it. I, was I knew just right like, away okay. I didn't like it as much as H2O, yeah. which is one of the movies it erased. And then the right. more I thought about it, I started to hate some of the decisions, like not making Laurie and Michael brother and sister. and Because then I was like, what are we even talking about then? But whatever. It still yeah. was within the realm of Halloween. But then Halloween Kills, which was mm -hmm. the sequel, it came out last year. It was actually supposed to come out in twenty. 20 but because of covid they held on to it for a full year comes out in 2021 other than halloween resurrection which is on its own island yeah. of shit i would say halloween kills might be the second worst i know people don't like six the curse of michael myers but even that has some sort Here's, of a goofy charm to it and i you know this bled into halloween ends for me even though halloween kills there was a certain moment that you get to where I wanted to shut it off. Like, I was hating it. Yeah. But I didn't hate the whole movie. I liked some of the flashback stuff that they did. But once it got to the point that I hated it, there was, like, no going back. Yeah. You just sort of wish, like, if they're going to do this flashback stuff, that it would actually mean something. And well, true. And accomplish something. Yeah. Halloween Kills was terrible. But in a weird way, 
I think the terribleness of the film sort of plays into Halloween Ends. And I think that if you're going to get anything out of Halloween Ends, you have to first embrace parts of Halloween Kills. Because I do think that I get what the message is. I understand what they're going for. Mm. So now let's talk about Halloween Ends. I think I liked it a little bit more than you, but I don't think that it's a great film by any means. It sets out to do something similar to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which is a film that I did not like when it came out, and it took a long time. Now it's your number two in the series. No, it's number three (laughs) or four. All right, significant jump. Yeah. It used to be towards the bottom, and now I fully get it, especially when you see the director's cut and you sort of buy into what it's supposed to be and the idea of it. I think... Halloween Ends sets out to do something similar. It's just not as successful for me. But the opening of Halloween Ends is awesome, I think. Yes. Because that it's so weird yes. and you're thinking, what the fuck is happening? And it's a great start because it seems like now completely different. Yeah, you don't know what's going on. And it's keeping you completely off balance. Like, what is happening? What is this? And I think that as long as you're willing to go for the ride, meaning sitting in for the hour and 50 minute running time and just watch the whole thing and not shut it off and not get put off by what they're doing because it is weird. And for people who want a movie of Michael Myers going around killing people, this is not that movie, but yeah, if you let them tell their whole story, I think you can get what they're going for. It's just a matter of how good is it? I don't know. They're going for something more like dairy in it or, something like that, where the town seems cursed, and it's more than Michael Myers. It's what he's caused that's fucked with them for 40 years. Gotcha, yeah. And because he escapes at the end of Halloween Kills, and there's a time jump, and they don't know where he is, it's poisoned the town. And the poison is contagious. It's in the water. Yeah, the poison is contagious. It's like cabin fever. It's bitterness, it's resentment, it's anger, it's fear. And it's led to evil. Those yeah. are the, like the ingredients. And the whole point of Halloween Kills, which sucks, the movie, not the point, <laughs> is that evil dies tonight. They think we're going to kill evil. Yeah, yeah. But then they learn in this film, the town of Haddonfield, that evil is not one man. Mm-hmm. Killing Michael Myers is not going to kill evil. Right. Getting rid of Michael Myers does not get rid of evil. Evil lives in everyone. Evil is a thing that exists. So... When you look at it from that perspective, you yeah. can say, I get what they're going for. It's a wild swing. And a lot of people, even if they didn't love the film, seem to be respecting the fact yeah. that they swung for something. Now, as a horror movie, I would agree with what you were saying. Yeah. It's not suspenseful. It's not it, scary. I was not even like a hint of building tension or anything, really. Yeah. And there were people that were bitching that it's like 80% this Corey character yeah. and 20% Michael Myers. I was okay with that. I mean, that doesn't bother me because I'm not even in love with this iteration of Michael Myers anyway. Like, he's, it's fine. I mean, there's nothing really. It's just another he's just one. He's old. Yeah. He's an old man. But now. even like in this trilogy, it's the insane, over-the-top mutant that I'm going to stab people a million times. Yeah, and there's no logical explanation as to how he survives the events of Halloween Kills. It yeah. doesn't make any sense. He gets shot a bunch of times. I don't like it. I'd rather them, okay, be a, a monster that's tough to beat, but I, I just don't like when it's, let's make this so insane, the things that he's surviving. So I don't think we've really spoiled anything too specific yet about the story. 
I'm not going to spoil the story specifically, but I mean, I'm going to mention some lines of dialogue and stuff. So if you don't want to know anything about Halloween Ends, this is a good point to shut it off. But there's some real cringe writing in it, which yeah, some of in the a weird way tough. makes it funny. Yes, that is true. It's been four years since I've seen my monster. <laughs> and then at one point, Jamie Lee Curtis says something to the effect of, it's the kind of thing that you want to pull your tits out. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is she talking about? I know. About? It's very strange. The relationship between the granddaughter, who was sort of the main girl of the first two films, although not really. I felt like Judy Greer, her mother, was almost I know. the bigger part. Same. But whatever. She was kind of the main girl in the first movie, less so in Halloween Kills. Yeah, true. Her relationship with this new character, this Corey character, is inexplicable. They don't do a great Hard job. Hard to believe. I said to you, they could have established that they had history from before yeah. this guy's accident thing, and I get, you know a lot. Then you, right there, you accomplish what you the, set out to. But. The connection that they're trying to make is of people both just like looking at them all the time as like these Which I outcasts. Get. Would she not be like freaked out by this dude? Eventually, yeah. Although maybe she fully buys that it was an accident, the thing at the beginning. But yeah, he gets weird, and she doesn't seem to see it, and. That's strange. Right. I don't know. It didn't fully work for me, but at the same time, I'm one of those people that hated the first two entries in the series to the point where it almost felt like this was going to be a bummer to even have to watch it because I was like, I'm not interested, but I feel like I should watch it so we can mention it on the podcast. And then because I waited over 24 hours from its actually 48 hours because I think you could watch it Thursday night. I waited like basically two days. So then you start seeing yeah. people talk about it, and I'm like, okay, something's going on. <laughs> I don't know what, but there's something with this movie that it seems like I want to watch it now, right, because right. what the fuck are they talking about? This, yeah. Obviously, this is causing people to freak out in some way. So all of a sudden, my interest was like peaked, mm. and the fact that it got me even interested in watching it was an accomplishment, because... I just felt like, oh, God, these Blumhouse fucking Halloween movies are so pointless. <laughs> they lack any of the charm yeah. of even H2O, which I thought was like a million times better than yeah. 2018. Well, I've never thought Halloween 6 with Paul Rudd is by any means good, mediocre. But I will say this. I have more fun watching it. <laughs> I was just not yeah, really having fun. Yeah, there's something grim about these movies that's almost different even than the Rob Zombie ones, which are like trashy grim. Yeah. But these are almost just bland grim. Right. At a certain point, I'm like, I'm just not really finding myself having a lot of fun here. Yeah, I think I prefer the Rob Zombie 2 movies to these ones pretty easily. Although I don't love Rob Zombie's first Halloween. I think that movie's kind of a mess. And I can totally understand why people don't like 2009 Halloween 2. But that's a vibe movie where if you find the right wavelength and yeah. you get what it's going for, it suddenly makes sense to you what this movie is. But it's also very weird, and you're like, is Michael Myers even real in this movie? What are they trying to say? I don't know. I and still haven't really gone back into that world, but you're pushing day, me there. Yeah. One day you'll get on yeah. it. <laughs> I think you definitely have to start with the director's cut. Yeah. We'll save the Halloween okay. 2 talk for another time. <laughs> Halloween ends is not the worst Halloween movie for me. Not even really close because I still think Resurrection is in that land with Jason Goes to Hell or Nightmare on Elm Street 6, Freddy's Dead. Just the worst of the worst in terms of 
franchise movies. Yeah. It's embarrassing, Halloween Resurrection, in a way that even the other bad Halloween movies aren't embarrassing. Like, it's so embarrassing. I know. I know. So, it's not as bad as that. I would probably put Halloween Ends ahead of maybe even a few other ones because... I respect what it's going for, even though I don't know that it's fully successful. I think that they could have done more with the idea. They could have still made it scarier. Yeah. But I thought that there was some funny moments, even if they were unintentionally funny. Well, that is true. There, there's some some laughs to be had, too. How they and... dispose of Michael Myers <laughs> is very funny. It's so insane. And I'll give credit you know, to like David Gordon Green, because when I watched this movie and then watch Hellraiser later, even though I've really not been digging this Halloween trilogy, it's like, okay, I'm clearly watching a skilled filmmaker put something together. Whereas Hellraiser seems like noticeably lower quality to me. Well, you could also use that same thing to say that some of the previous Halloween movies that we like a lot because of nostalgia are clearly not made as competently. Definitely. Halloween 5, Halloween 6. But yet some of seemingly are still more fun. <laughs> yeah, because you're factoring in yeah, the, yeah. the nostalgia and the goofiness. Right. And some of that. And just, I guess it. some of it is just like liking the older era of filmmaking, you know. Yeah, there's not as much digital quality right. and it doesn't feel. It's just a different aesthetic. Yeah, it feels much more practical and like in the moment kind of a thing. Because even now, if they're putting a knife into somebody's head or something, it's probably a CGI situation. They're not doing like a practical effect now. Not really. All right. So we're kind of, I would say we're like a mixed bag on Halloween Ends. I know you gave it kind of a harsher score on yeah. Letterboxd, but. I don't know. I could I could talk myself up a little bit, but I still. I'm, for me, uh, I, it's weird because like I said, I think that. I Would did I tell say you, it's better than Halloween 2018? I don't yeah. know, but I find it more interesting than those two. I did tell you two. when we first started talking about it that I never got to where I was with Halloween Kills, which is like, I hate this. <laughs> like, I was never there. So, like, the whole time I watched it and, like, was fine. But there was times where I was, like, finding myself rolling my eyes. Oh, yeah. There's you know? certain things in it that just don't make sense and are weird, but... Weird kind of in a fun way, I guess, because it's so strange that this is how they decided to end this trilogy, where everyone, I think, would have been expecting the big Laurie-Michael showdown. And there kind of is, but that doesn't feel like the focal point of the movie. I've talked myself up to it, too. (laughs) I have Halloween Kills at a 1.5, and it just has to be more than that. I feel like that should just be lower. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So anyway, if you loved Halloween Ends, I totally get it. And if you hated it, I totally get it. I get both. And I know that there is a chance that since people obsess over Halloween movies and obsess over these franchise horror things, that this will be something like a Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 or a Halloween 3 from 1982, where people slowly over time talk themselves into it a little bit more and the online opinion changes over time because people realize maybe more what the director was going for and they start seeing the bigger picture because I think part of the problem when you're dealing in these franchise films is that people have set expectations. Yeah. They decide what they want out of it and then it's never going to be that. And so when you try something really off the beaten path, then people are like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. 
So I think that ultimately my final verdict is that it's okay to hate it or love it. All right. It's so unlike anything I would have imagined. I would have never guessed that this is what they were going to do. I was expecting Halloween Kills Volume 2. That just seemed like... I had no idea what, to what they I think were going for. They had beaten me down to a point of not caring. So well, they certainly disguised what this movie was in yeah. the trailer because I'm sure they were afraid if people get wind of what this is, like we might be looking at Halloween three style. Yeah, box yeah, office. right. Yeah, like if they think Michael Myers isn't going to be the killer or, or whatever, and Michael Myers is in it, but in a diminished role, I would yeah. say. All right, that'll do it for the sixth sense. You can check out. The Sixth Sense now is on Hulu and I think a couple places. It's mm. back on streaming. Huluween. Check out Hellraiser as a part of Huluween yeah. on Hulu. <laughs> and Halloween Ends is in theaters and on Peacock. Peacock just can't catch a break. You would think like this would spike numbers up, and yet Halloween Ends makes like $43 million in the box office over the weekend. It's like, you can watch this for free if you have Peacock. <laughs> yeah. And it's their own fault. Typically... A movie like Halloween is part of a franchise I love. I would say, let's just go see this in the theater. But yeah. Halloween Kills ruined everything so much where I just didn't think it was worth it. It was almost an afterthought. I was like, hey, why don't you watch these movies? We can talk about them. You're like, yeah. oh, God. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. I'm running out of time. All right. Thanks for listening. Greatest October rolls on. We still got two more big Halloween episodes left. Mm-hmm. And because we really slacked off at the beginning of 2022 and took off so much time over the beginning of the spring end of winter i don't regret it well i'm just saying we're not going to take a big break in november we're going to keep rolling through the end of the year basically so hang on to your butts find us on twitter at greatest pod and you can request a sticker and we will send that to you for free make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on apple Podcasts, podbean etc please give us a rating and review we always love to hear from people no matter what you can hit us up on twitter either in a tweet or a dm Chat us up. We love to hear from you. It's great to interact with everyone. If you have thoughts about any of these movies we've talked about today or anything else. And you can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983. My name that you would see on there is Zach parentheses mage highest levs. <laughs> if you see that and you're like, is this the person for That's the him. podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you can still find me under the search feature at Zach1983. And Matt Crosby... And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Make sure you're subscribed because there's no set days. I don't know if you noticed this, folks. <laughs> Give us a second. They're coming out on the regular days. We're coming out at episodes at the end of the week. I like totally pushed my mic away. I'm like, we're out. Well, I just realized that the scheduling has been even more <laughs> weird than I would have imagined okay. so far this month. But okay. Everyone's on board for the greatest October. We'll talk to you soon.
this was a rabbit they thought this was a rabbit oh that's funny <laughs> that's Winnie. fucking funny bitch it's fucking winnie the fucking poo yeah 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 fuck fourth of july